Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part of episode 29, which was all about White Dwarf, the RPG years. And it features all the bits that didn't quite fit into the first part. It's not a podcast, it's a little something extra, slipped in the envelope just for subscribers. A black sun, something like that. The White Dwarf Book Club is in full swing over at the grognardfiles.com site. Every week I roll on a D100 and choose, apparently at random, an issue for us to read together. Join in the discussion by clicking on the comments. It's been fascinating reading the comments and seeing how attitudes towards the material sometimes changes without those rose-tinted wasps. Those articles that seem so pertinent then seem a little jaded now. It's also been interesting hearing about your engagement with the scenarios, what worked well and what didn't, and which side you fell on during the notorious letters page debates. In this part of the episode, at Daily Dwarf from off Twitter gives an overview of the seven ages of White Dwarf, the RPG years. I'll be reading from his essay. For all of you White Dwarf fans, his collected contributions are available in three volumes for patrons. Nick Edwards was the fanzine editor back in the day. Rune Stone, Manic Depressive and Iron Orchid. He's contributed to the Grogzine and thegrognardfiles.com. In this podcast, he selected his first game that he played, the last game he played, and the game that means everything to him. Up in the attic, me and Blythe are rummaging through the Golden Wonder box, stuffed with white dwarf back issues, and looking at the adverts. Yeah, we really are doing the nostalgia thing with the adverts. I hope that you'll also listen to the Companion Extra podcast that features the complete interview with Mike Brunton, which is a tribute to his life and career following his sudden passing. At the end of the podcast, I'll share some of our plans for the next year. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. The Seven Ages of White Dwarf. Everything comes back to White Dwarf. I know there were other British RPG magazines available back in the day, but they were just mere pretenders to the throne. White Dwarf dominated the British RPG scene for over a decade, so much so that some of us (coughs) still bang on about it incessantly over 30 years later. But how do you sum up the entirety of those RPG years? Well, it seems to me that you can divide them into several different eras. So here's my entirely subjective breakdown. Please send all disagreements and complaints in writing to Dirt the Dice, the cupboard under the stairs, the north. One magazine in its time plays many parts. 1 to 10. Infancy. Out from the shadow of Owl and Weasel it came, blinking in the sunlight, flush with the success of securing the exclusive distribution rights for D&D with that famous order for six whole copies Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson launched their new professional magazine in the summer of 1977 
issue 1 attracting the punters with a decapitated wizard on the cover. Initially published bi-monthly, hands up who found out what bi-monthly meant because of White Dwarf. Unsurprisingly in those early issues, the main dish of the day was usually D&D with three primary content contributors, Ian Livingstone, Don Turnbull and Lou Pulsifer. The somewhat scattershot approach to the articles betrayed the magazine's fanzine roots, but even from the outset, many of its key features, Ian's editorial comments, open box, the letters and news pages, were all present and correct. Looking back at those issues, you can see how the magazine was still finding its way, developing its voice. Colour covers didn't start until issue 7, and long before Thrud, with even a twinkle in Carl Critchlow's eye, the Swords and Sorcery comic strip Kalgar arrived, and then departed almost as quickly. A multi-part story of heroic adventure, The Valley of the Four Winds, started in issue 8, and was later turned into a board game by Games Workshop. And a proper scenario didn't appear until issue 9, with Albifore's excellent the Lich Way. But the important thing was, White Dwarf had arrived. 11 to 25. The Rise of the Departments. RPGs were here to stay, and D&D had now been joined by the two other big beasts, Traveller and RuneQuest. And, slowly but surely, during this time, they began to make their presence felt in the pages of the magazine. Traveller in particular became a regular feature in White Dwarf in this era. Andy Slack's The Expanding Universe was quite the calling card. A big hit of rules and ideas to make your game well beyond the little black books. The era also saw the establishment of regular departments as the mainstays of the magazine through many years. Fiend Factory and Treasure Chest had already started, but they were joined by Character Conjuring and then in issue 20 by Starbase, a regular column for Traveller, edited by Bob McWilliams. While RuneQuest would have to wait a little longer for its own department, the scenarios for the game began to appear, not to mention an interview with the great shaman himself, Greg Stafford. At the same time as the establishment of the departments, scenario writers were becoming much more ambitious with the scale and innovation of their ideas. And we started to see, during this era, with adventures like The Halls of Tizen Thane, The Sable Rose Affair, and The Lair of Maldred the Mighty. And while the big three dominated, scenarios did also appear for more niche games like Chivalry and Sorcery and Gamma World. While all these games were coming from America, White Dwarf was starting to provide a distinctly British approach to RPGs. Thoughtful, idiosyncratic, with a healthy dose of sardonic humour. 26-50 to 50, The First Golden Age Some people might dispute when the Golden Age of White Dwarf started exactly. I'd argue that it coincided with whenever you started reading the magazine. Its impact on all British gamers was huge. So for me, the golden age began with issue 26. 
packed with gaming features that left my young brain reeling and lavishly illustrated by Ian McCaig. Whichever issue you regarded as the beginning of the Golden Age, there was no doubting the high quality of many of the classic articles and scenarios from this period dealing with demons, troubles at ember trees and the Griselda stories, Shuttle Scuttle, The Necromancer, Irillion, more on that in an upcoming grogpod. All were published in this era of feverish creativity. While each issue was relatively thin, they seemed to still be packed with goodness, compelling features, exciting news and tempting adverts. So often, one of those adverts or a review of Open Box would be the first time we'd hear about a game or an adventure. A thrill sadly now lost in the internet age. During this era though, the magazine continued to evolve. One reason might have been that, having had the UK RPG magazine market to itself for many years, suddenly White Dwarf had to rise up to the challenge of a rival. Imagine, TM. So, out with the Art Nouveau cover title and in with a big, bold font. New departments were added. Chief among them was Dave Langford's wonderful book review column, Critical Mass. Comic strips were reintroduced, this time lasting considerably longer than the late, unlamented Calgar. There were some tentative steps to cover more games during this period, with Tunnels and Trolls and Champions at least getting a bit of a looking. AD&D, RuneQuest and Traveller continued to dominate though, with the big three then becoming the Fab Four, as the upstart tyke Call of Cthulhu quickly gathered recognition and made its presence felt in the magazine. And of course, finally, finally White Dwarf was published monthly. It was an absolutely necessary purchase each and every month. This truly was the golden age. Would we ever see its like again? 51 to 64. Reaching out, the fighting fantasy era. Having reached the grand old age of 50 issues, White Dwarf began to focus on further horizons in an attempt to grow its readership. Once only available from game shops or via subscription, it was now for sale in mainstream UK newsagents like WH Smith and John Menzies. To introduce new readers to the weird and wonderful world of RPGs, a series of articles by Marcus L. Rowland, The Name of the Game, was published, outlining the basics of RPGs and the many different games and genres on offer. White Dwarf also sought to capitalise on two other popular phenomena at the time, computer games and the inexorable rise of fighting fantasy game books. To that end, the microview department, introduced in the previous era, was expanded. Yes, those pesky microcomputers were here to stay. And come on, who didn't love typing in programmes for magazines? And on the fighting fantasy front, two solo adventures were published, The Castle of Lost Souls by Dave Morris and The Dark Usurper by John Sutherland and Gareth Hill. A smart move to attract a new audience to the magazine, although not so well received by some of the old hands on the letters page. Why on earth do you waste paper on things like this? The quality of articles and scenarios kept coming, along with the number of new departments. 
Some fell on stony ground and were relatively short-lived. Steve Jackson's, no, the other one, Crash Course, uh, crashed. And Board Game's column, Counterpoint, packed up its box one last time. You can't help but feel, though, that while Board Game's lost the battle, given their huge popularity now, they ultimately won the war. Some departments flourished, though. The era saw the introduction of Crawling Chaos, Mark Gascoigne's column for Call of Cthulhu, and Heroes and Villains for Golden Heroes, edited by the dynamic duo of Simon Burley and Peter Haynes. But perhaps the most significantly, for all the long-term future of White Dwarf, this era also saw a new column devoted to miniatures, Tabletop Heroes by Gary Chalk and Joe Dever with plenty of full-colour photos from the outset. Figures were now very firmly a fixture in the magazine. A sign of things to come? 65 to 77. Times begin a-changing. White Dwarf became a pensioner. Distinguished, dependable and... safe? It was around this time that, whisper it, I started to fall a bit out of love with the magazine. This was more to do with the moribund state of my gaming at the time than the magazine itself, which continued in a similar vein to the era that preceded it. With so many more games now available, though, the department structure was beginning to creak, unnecessarily restricting the content that could be covered each month. And so, the departments that we'd known and loved for so long, Fiend Factory, Starbase, Rune Rites, treasure chests, and all were slowly phased out, disappearing from the pages of the magazine with no fanfare, seemingly with nobody to mourn their loss, apart from the odd angry grognard on the letters page. With this freedom and more pages to play with, systems hitherto uncovered, like Middle-earth role-playing, Dragon Warriors and Star Trek, appeared, not to mention the slow but steady increase of features on Warhammer. Most significantly, for all of us who've been with the magazine for a while, in issue 74, Ian Livingstone departed as editor, replaced in the next issue by Ian Marsh. In actual fact, Jamie Thompson had really been the editor for a while, with Ian Livingstone concentrating on fighting fantasy game books. But at the time, it still felt like a symbolic moment, a definite changing of the guard. I stayed loyal to White Dwarf, of course, and was never tempted to stray. Towards the end of this era, White Dwarf began to win me round again. Martin Heitch's article on gamesmanship inspired some great ideas and lifted my AD&D games out of the doldrums. White Dwarf even had a themed issue. Or did I just imagine it? A thieves special with issue 76. So, a bit of a change then? I didn't mind that, but things were going to carry on much as before, right? 78 to 92. The Second Golden Age, a.k.a. Nottingham's Not-So-Bad, is it? More change. White Dwarf turned its back on London and headed north to Nottingham, with a new editor and a newfound optimism, albeit with the odd acrostic ringing in its ears. In this brave new world, the departments had completely gone, replaced by a looser, more freewheeling style. Now, for some people, this era was the beginning of the end. 
coverage of the big three began to decline, with White Dwarf becoming much more an overtly Games Workshop house magazine. So why have I labelled it the second golden age? Well, consider the roster of role-playing games that White Dwarf had on the books at the time. Either their own games or those published under licence. RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, Judge Dread, Paranoia, Merp, not to mention the new kid on the block, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And all of them were supported to a greater or lesser extent in White Dwarf, with the old warhorse AD&D still trundling on as well. The established White Dwarf writers like Marcus L. Rowland, Graham Davis, Graham Staplehurst have been honing their craft for many years now and so produced classics such as Curse of the Bone, The Sprung Ones, Ghost Jackal Kill, Tori Fanto and On Eildon Brygen. Many of the ex-TSR UK staff who have been lured to Nottingham were also writing for the magazine starting to get to grips with the dark and dangerous world of Warhammer fantasy roleplay. Yes, miniatures in the form of heavy metal were slowly becoming more prominent, but White Dwarf still felt very much a role-playing magazine, still bursting with ideas for the hobby. Go and check those back issues from your Golden Wonder box if you don't believe me. This really was another golden age for the magazine. 93 to 106. Embrace, extend, extinguish. All good things come to an end though, don't they? Why start this era with 93? Well, just look at the cover. This was the commencement of the 40k invasion. As I've said in a previous pod, while Warhammer Fantasy Battle took a long time to establish itself regularly in White Dwarf, the opposite was true with Warhammer 40,000. An engaging idea, orcs in space, coupled with an aggressive marketing push, meant that it featured heavily in the magazine from the game's release. Its success became self-fulfilling. The more it featured in White Dwarf, the more figures people bought, and so more it featured. Like a Borg cube, the 40k juggernaut swallowed up the magazine until it was unrecognisable from just a few issues before. The writing was clearly on the wall by this point. But even as the RPG sun was dying, in amongst all the chaos spiky bits, there were still some gems to be found. Wolfrup's scenarios included Graham Davis' clever Rough Knight at the Three Feathers and Carl Sargent's epic Grapes of Wrath. Indeed, the epic scenario was reoccurring theme at this era. Stormbringer Adventure, The Madcap Laughs by Matt Williams and To Live and Die in Mega City 1 Marcus Rowland's love letter to the classic Jude Dread was also published, but the ratio had changed. The scales had tipped. While in the previous era, White Dwarf was the RPG magazine with the occasional wargame feature, it was now the opposite. Warhammer 40,000 and Blood Bowl were what the readership demanded. And figures, figures, always more figures. The RPG content gradually petered out until... There was none. And so White Dwarf moved into mere oblivion. Sans articles, sans scenarios, sans everything. Never to be published again. Hang on, say what now? 
So first, thanks to Dirt With Dice for letting this humble patron backer um, record this. I have no claim to fame. I have one scenario published in The Adventurer magazine in 1985, the third best role-playing magazine available in 1985. I edited some fanzines, uh, Manic Depressive, Runestone, Iron Orchid, and I've spent the last 10 years falling back in love with role-playing and the hobby and disposing of my disposable income on both. The first, as with many others, was the basic D&D. In my case, the monochrome Blue Dragon cover, which came out in 1978, edited by Eric Holmes and published on licence in the UK by Games Workshop. This was when fighting men were still fighting men and Wolvesbane was a handy herb. There was the largely random order of how characters were created and encumbrance rules, which meant PCs do nothing every six rounds to rest. I think I was about 10 when I was first introduced to it by my older brother via his friend and it was genuinely astonishing, this thin book that was so much bigger on the inside. And if there was something more amazing than playing it, it was realising you could buy your own book and do it yourself. My local shop was the long-gone forever people on Park Street in Bristol, staffed by mean-spirited hippies who really wanted to be selling fabulous furry Freak Brothers comics. I'm still rankled by the memory of my 12-year-old self asking if they sold graph paper and being told, this is not a stationer's. It's graph paper for drawing dungeons. You'd think I'd asked about hole punches. Thinking about this has brought back memories. Running my first game in lunch hour in primary school. I can't remember repeat being requested, so I must have really nailed it. Rocking up to games with PC's attributes sporting a succession of 17s and 18s. Just look at my private lucky rolls. In everything but charisma, of course, because when you're 13, you don't need charisma. The original players drifted away and then I had my own group and we also played Traveller, Call of Cthulhu, RuneQuest, Merp. I never really had a group of close friends who played so it faded through my teens. And the fanzine seems a bit snotty about actually playing, it felt, with most of them, mine very much included, turning their backs on games themselves. So like many firsts, not too pretty in retrospect, but basic would always be special and darned if I'm going to let anyone else criticise it. Waking up from cryosleep 10 years ago, I stocked back up on all the 70s and 80s games I had, or wished I'd had, and I have shelves of them, plus I've started buying new games again, more of that later. But that first D&D book still has a frish on that I can't really explain. My regret is it lay dormant for so long. I've now got it in front of me, not my original of course, in fact I recently came across an ad I put in White Dwarf in 1984, selling all my games, like an idiot. But I'm going to roll up a character later, if I can just work out how to do it. The last game I played was Judge Dredd in the Worlds of 2000 AD, which I bought at UK Games Expo this year. I'd run a few games of Dredd using the 1985 game from uh, Games Workshop, but I wanted to run a campaign using new rules after the game designer was interviewed on what would the smart party do. I'll still do that campaign for my proper group, but I ran a few practice games with my two sons in the last few weeks, using the climax of the old Slaughter Margin scenario book, mixed up with Dirt Dice's description of his UK Expo uh, game. It brought home to me that the nerd gene is strong in them and they get RPGs instinctively. Dice are feared for low rolls and coveted for high rolls. They want to do cinematic things with spectacular results, ideally with some basic maps and counters so they keep, keep focused. They really like the countdown mechanic from the, uh, Judge Dredd, the new Judge Dredd game. And they're also incredibly cautious and need to be herded into doing pretty much anything which carries even a smidgen of risk. I listen at the door. You hear nothing. I creep away. But uh, true to Judge Dredd's style, they do love sensing people. 
And that's a, definitely their favourite part of the game is working out the hugely and absurdly long sentences they give to criminals. It struck me that they put a lot more effort into playing beforehand than adults. Long walks on the beach, hatching harebrained schemes for a game later. They can also recap a game in detail from weeks before. Anyway, they're currently battling their way through an abandoned missile silo deep in cursed earth on the trail of Vladimir Pushkin, the soft city bomber. My everything would be Call of Cthulhu and specifically Delta Green. I really liked the original game as a kid, although I didn't know Lovecraft at that time and I was too young to really use the game right. I think Azathoth got summoned in the first session. But things like The Order of the Silver Twilight blew my mind. Wow, it's not a dungeon, it's a big old house with paintings that send you mad. But I've chosen Delta Green because that's what got me back into all this ten years ago. When I suddenly asked myself, what happened with all those games I used to love? And it turned out that Delta Green was one of the things that had happened. I read an online game write-up of uh, Convergence and Night Floors, two scenarios from the original book. That started a long-time crush on the work of people like Dennis Ditweller, Scott Glancy, John Tynes and others. I bought the two original hardbacks on eBay and devoured them like novels. I bought the novels and mined them for game ideas and play aids. The first stuff I ran when I got back inside the, game, the gaming hobby was a long and messy Delta Green campaign that uh, took Pisces from uh, Delta Green Countdown and mixed it with Beyond the Mountains of Madness. You can read the three-year write-up of that campaign at uh, the, the blog I do, 12-Sided Dice on WordPress. For me, there's no better writing, design and passion available in role-playing than Delta Green. They just never seem to put a foot wrong. The irony is that I don't really have the right group now for the kind of dark, personal horror of that universe. We're more pop Cthulhu. So maybe that's a long-term project for the kids while they're still vulnerable. Or maybe adopt some new kids who are a bit more damaged already. After all, Dennis's impossible landscape's on its way, and I need the right audience. Attic Attack! Welcome back to the Attic Attack, where we're shuffling through our golden wonder box of white dwarves up in the attic. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Now, this golden wonder box, it's hit a nerve, hasn't it, this? Eh? Crisps. Yeah. Crisps. Who'd have thought it? It's been an hour and a half the last podcast, all that people talked about crisps. Rightly so. Yeah, it's, it's an important issue. It's a good job we didn't uh, get the uh, opal fruit box. Eh? I'll leave that for another time. Oh yeah, Contra- controversy. So we thought we'd look again at uh, white dwarves, and you know it's a nostalgia-based podcast. This and what do they do when they do these nostalgia things? Is look at the adverts, isn't it? So that's what. Mm, yes. Eighties advert because it's always on these programs, isn't it? It's like uh, Ready Break with that <laughs> with the Sellafield glow around them. <laughs> yes. Central heating for kids. Yeah. I don't think it stacks up. Right? Well, my it doesn't stack up because my my recollection of the seventies, uh, the early eighties, in the north of England, I was, just, I was freezing all the time. <laughs> um, you know, ice on the inside of the windows. I don't, I was eating ready break, did no no good whatsoever. <laughs> so we're going to look at the adverts and uh, see what what we remember from them. Mm, and, uh, just okay. have a chat around them. So I'll start with you. What what are you what are you going for first? Well, I think the the one I'm going for first. And it's one in particular, but I think it's more of a type of advert that was in White Dwarf. Yeah. It's the Esdivium Games advert. Esdivium Games used to have a full-page advert in most of the issue, the early issue. Esdivium, is it Esdivium? Esdi- I don't know. Esdivium. They still exist, don't Esdivium, they? Esdivium, is it? Esdivium. And there's another, there's another one as well, Games of Liverpool. They used to yeah. have a big 
And, and what these shops would do is they listed lots and th lots of things they had, yeah. some modules and games that they had in stock. Yeah. And they were fascinating because you would look at the tiny, tiny print. And it, it may be the case, because we never went to these places. And um, you would look at the list and they go, oh, look at all this stuff it's got. It's got that, it's got this. That may have been all it had. Yeah. For all we know, they were just listing everything they had, in which case it's a few shelves, isn't it? But it looked, it gave the impression that they had tons of stuff, more stuff than at Games Workshop, where we would go, Boydell's Toys, Games Workshop. We used yeah. to go to Beatty's, didn't we, as well, in Manchester? Beatty's Games uh, Model Shop. They had a few role playing things as well. But these, apparently, I don't know if they were big or not, I imagine they were big game shops yeah they may not have been the other people could correct me but they had a certain allure to them because they listed all these things and somehow you got that feeling that because it wasn't games workshop they may have, may have sort of things that games workshop didn't have well it, it's funny you should pick that because I picked a, a similar thing for mine um, which I'll come on to in a minute but you're right when they you see as soon as you're in games, that, that appeals to you, doesn't it? Because it's a bloody long list. I never looked at that. <laughs> what are you saying? I used, I used to be attracted to the ones with pictures. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm a bit yeah. more visual. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forever People. You remember that one? Yes, I do, yeah. A, a, an old block with a lantern and there's arms uh, coming that's through. That's right, yeah. 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 And um, not just stamps in High Wycombe. Yes. Not just stamps. What a great name for a shop. Yeah. They, they had a kind of magical quality to them, didn't they? They yeah. were like magical places. Almost like magical places on a fantasy map of Britain, of game shops that you thought, somehow, even if it didn't have a list, the very name of it and a picture would make you think, oh, what they've got. And you can definitely see that uh, those early ones in the early 80s like homemade adverts weren't they so mm. this is before desktop publishing or anything so it's done with letters there yeah and the, there's one I don't even remember this one called uh, Black Donald yes I do Alabama. remember that yeah, yeah. <laughs> Black Donald <laughs> game shop it's like suspect yeah and it had like a Highlander that's right yeah, Highlander, yeah, yeah. done with um, the gothic letter set and underneath <laughs> there's a tiny cartoon you couldn't see it and it had Hop along haggis. <laughs> a cowboy haggis walking into What were these people on? <laughs> just so, is it just games they sold or something else? Yeah. <laughs> the national stereotypes. But they were, they did. They had a certain. Even, even if it was a list or pictures, the game shop adverts were always enticing in some way. You yeah. know, some far flung corner of the universe like Preston. Um, which the, you know you just couldn't get to. Yeah. As we've said before about games, games clubs, you know, Preston or I don't know, Altrincham, just down the road. Uh, but they seemed they had a sort of allure to them, didn't they? Yeah. Well, the, so so my pick is actually Forbidden Planet, the Forbidden Planet yes. uh, adverts that mm. used to be on there. And I, obviously, I said before I used to be really into Starburst and used to advertise in there. And they have the Brian Bolland picture, people yes. like us shop, not sure. Forbidden Planet. And it was my dream to visit visit uh, uh, Forbidden Planet. I mean, it's 
odd to think it now because they're nearly on every corner, aren't they? Oh, it's very strange. There's one in Manchester, and it's like a commonplace. Is people dr- yeah. drift in and out of it as if looking. Some people looking puzzled as if it's just a an ordinary thing. But to to go to Forbidden Planet, it's yeah. like Xanadu or something, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> at the lost city of Atlantis to go to we, Forbidden Planet. We may have mentioned this before, but your mum was. Uh, and Ami Drammy My mum still is. Still is. Sadly, yeah. Still doing it. Still, still doing it, but I refuse to go and watch anything there. Oh. We, well. we, under sufferance, we used to go. She was once the Merry, merry Widow, wasn't she? I think she, it was she a, was, yes. <laughs> the Merry Widow. And in the Merry Widow year, I think we were allowed to go there to London. It was a bit of an annual pilgrimage. Yes. They would go watching. The Ami Drammys would go watching some um, West End, dreadful, dreadful West End show. And we were allowed to go around London with your dad as a chaperone. Yes, so we didn't get lost. Yeah. Yeah, although we wanted to get lost in Soho with my dad, which was a bit awkward, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Turned a corner and thought, oh, oh yeah. Look at the, oh dear, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we? Oh, yeah. oh dear. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so we went, we went for pilgrimage to Denmark Street, didn't we, to Forbidden Planet? Yes. And I just remember a bit. A bit being uh, slack jawed, looking at these models of look fantastic. Yeah, the model, yeah, yeah. And the, the face hugger. Yeah. I just, he just, like, that was an Aladdin's cave. Yeah. And I bought, I bought Stormbringer from, there, from yeah. Forbidden Planet, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. I think it was the second role playing game I bought after Traveller. I think I, it was Stormbringer that I bought from Forbidden Planet. Yeah. Because yeah. they sold role playing games. But I think it was that. It was that, as I said, it, that idea that because it wasn't you go to place was Games Workshop, and then you had the other two places we went to, but they they had a kind of low they were like low grade Games Workshop. But when you went to these the, somewhere like Forbidden Planet, they'd have stuff that wasn't available in Games Workshop. Yeah. It was a more of kind of not a jumble set, but a kind of mixture of things yeah. that. Well, they had like the imports from America. That's what I mean, yeah, yeah, it was all that kind of stuff. So there was a sort of unpredictability about what you might actually find in these I bought, I bought from the Different Worlds magazine, because you just couldn't get it. I bought Different Worlds magazine, because obviously there's the RuneQuest stuff. And I remember, I don't even remember this, I remember saying to the man behind the desk, um, we've come here because of White Dwarf. Because... (laughs) Is that like a code word? Yeah. (laughs) Pass your briefcase, lock briefcase. Deliver this to the, well, the Russian said, embassy. He said at the bottom <laughs> of every page where the adverts, please mention White Dwarf to our advertisers, didn't it? Or something like that. And so I, dutifully, dutifully, you decided to mention it. And this, this guy just looked at me. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know what he was expecting, expecting him to <laughs> what, do. What response you expected? <laughs> For him to write it down. Oh, thank you. Set up a party popper and give you a prize. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning it, sir. You know, it's surprising. Most people don't. But you have. Well done. Well done. Ian Livingstone will appear from the back. Yeah. Give you a free copy of, I don't know, module BX31 or something. You can think, oh, I don't play, dude. We've been waiting a long time for you to arrive. <laughs> but did you say, please mention White Dwarf when uh, responding to advertisers. So I did. Oh, yeah. But you fell on deaf ears. You did? Never mind. So what else have you got there? Um, what have you got? Oh, yeah. I've, I've, I've done Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet, Planet Yeah. You? Right. What else? Keep up. Sorry. <laughs> oh, it's a, a challenge. Long, it's been a long day. 
reading all them adverts, his ads would be mine. Right. The one one thing I've cry havoc. What, do you want me to do it now? No. Havoc! Oh! <laughs> Cry Havoc, Cardboard Warriors. Oh, right. Do you remember Cry Havoc? I think so, yeah. yeah. I th- they did little cardboard figures. Um, and it, one of those, it, reading, this is more to do with reading back over White Dwarfs rather than back in the day. Because yeah. reading back over and looking at the adverts again, I thought, what a great idea. Yeah. Why were we obsessed with like, metal figures? <laughs> really, the card, they, they were great little cardboard things in a stand. But somehow, we, we were dismissive of that. Yeah. But, but now, I would, you know, I've played games at uh, Expo where people have used little cardboard, and it's been perfectly good. But at the time, we kind of glossed over it a bit. Glossed over it, but I also think it looked very complicated to buy stuff by mail order, because... You know, you yeah, think now it's could, very easy, isn't it? Yes. To do yeah. Stuff. What would you? How would you? That's true, actually. What you'd look at stuff, and and maybe with the cry havoc things, we thought oh, they might be a good idea. Maybe we did think they were a good yeah. idea, but actually getting hold of them, getting postal orders, and because uh, we didn't have a checkbook, did we? No, no, it would have been yeah. You wouldn't have had it. Wouldn't have had yeah. an access card. No, so you'd have to ask your parents to write a check or get a postal order. But you did buy stuff. Because I, I never bought stuff mail order. But didn't you get one of those um, figure boxes? I did, and that that was that was on my list of things. Yeah, there was the um, what was it called? Dragon, the Dragon Lords, the Dragon Lords, um, not Dragon Lords, Dragon Tower. That's it, Dragon Tower, Dragon, Dragon Tower. Tower figure carrying case. Yes, yeah. I had one of those. Yeah, yeah, a little foam compartments to put your figures in, so that when you when I would carry figures to your house or whatever. Stop the paint getting chipped. I was always envious of your little box. You, um, you were envious of it, were you? I was, yeah. Well, mine's related to this, because this is... And I want to talk about something, a wider issue, right? Mm. You're right, when, we look, when I look back on this, I realise that my eyes glided over some of the yeah. adverts that he's been there. And yes. there was one now that seemed very prominent, but I just ignored. Yes. And that was Dragon Roar. Now, Dragon Roar was an RPG. Now, on its image, key image, was a big hedgehog with an axe. Yes, yes. That's, yeah. So it loses lose points for that. Yeah, Dragon Roar, but it's a hedgehog roar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was a, a, I think, that was a very popular a British game. I think, it, I think it's a British game. And it seemed to make a big deal out of um, fan content that it was promoting mm. fan content yeah. and it came with a cassette you got a cassette that, yes yeah it's coming, I do remember this now yeah yeah, yeah. they tell you how to play it it shows you how to play it it had a solo game on it apparently yeah but I don't think I ever read that I don't think I ever read that no I, I think that's the interesting thing when you look back when you look back over the old white dwarfs the, there is you're right and this is what I mean about the cry havoc thing. Uh, it now seems an eminently sensible idea to buy lots and lots of much, much cheaper cardboard figures for gaming, you know, because mm. we always had that problem we've talked about before of not having enough figures, not having yeah. enough money to buy the figures, having to paint the figures. And from a gaming perspective, it makes sense. But, but somehow we, we were, it just didn't register. We weren't interested in it. No. And a bit like that, some of the, there are some other games... Uh, 
they're advertised in all white dwarfs that I only I don't remember and it's only by revisiting it that I've noticed them yeah. because I think you were almost not blanking them out but you just weren't interested in certain things but yeah. now they seem quite interesting yeah intriguing mm. but I think it's, it follows now it follows now because there's still blind spots of games mm. that I, my eyes and ears just glance over them um, yes yeah I'm going to say Dungeon Crawl Classics. Yeah. And I know that there are people, people I know. People now shouting at you. As we now, know. people are shouting at their... Whatever they shout pods, at. Pods, casts, whatever they listen to this on. But Dungeon Crawl Classics, and we, we know people who are very enthusiastic players of it, but all I hear when people talk about it is like a white noise. <laughs> interrupted by the occasional funnel. The word funnel. Yeah. And it's as if... <laughs> My brain has edited yes. it out yeah. as though I've you, decided I'm, I'm not going to play that. Yeah. So I don't want anything no, to do I, with no, it. No, you're right. And that, that's what comes... That, that's Looking at those old adverts does make you think about that now and then, that there are things that you just didn't pay attention to. And the Cry Havoc thing, I do remember always seeing the Cry Havoc with a little cardboard warrior, but never, never considering... No. That as an option, even though now I think that'd be quite a good option, and that's that's true of today. There are things that, for some reason, just don't float your your game about, no, so no. to speak. Perhaps wrongly, but yeah, they, absolutely wrongly. Yeah. But just they just don't. Yeah, it's an odd thing. Every isn't time it? I mention uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, I can feel my body shrugging. You know, it's <laughs> like an involuntary reaction. <laughs> One day I might overcome it, you know. But it, it is interesting your eyes uh, glide past some of these things. Yeah, and when, as I say, when you revisit it, you suddenly notice it and go, oh, I remember that, but I never gave it due attention. Dragon Roar had the lead figure of a killer penguin. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's best to ignore that one then. Yeah, perhaps it is. Okay, what have you got next? Well,. There's so many, really. I think... Krasimov's World. Oh. Krasimov's World was, was one, was a thing that was, um, was in White Dwarf. Uh, there was Krasimov's World, and there was another one called Saturnalia. Do you remember that yeah. one? Yeah. Which were postal games. Earthwood. Tribes of Crane was another one, yeah. wasn't it? And uh, Krasimov's World was... Uh, the address for Krasimov's World was Cleveland's. Yeah. Which was slightly odd. Kind of place your grandma went for holidays. Yeah. If you were really unlucky, she took you. You know, it's in an odd place at Krasimov's World. And I do remember writing off for Krasimov's World and being slightly disappointed because it wasn't really a role-playing game. It was it was a postal game. But it was a postal game done done properly, as in certain moves and this, that and the other. Um, but they had a certain something about them, didn't they, as well? Like that thing of you hadn't got time to play as much as you wanted, but you could play yeah. more through the post. And it came on like a dot matrix printer paper, didn't it? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I did one later uh, called It's a Crime, and it was like a gangs. You played yeah. gangs, I think played the Stitchum crew, and you get your results and your moves, and it was all expressed as a series of A's and B's, and I never really understood what was going on. That's right. So there were, there were the postal games, but the other things as well, there were often things... 
some, sometimes funny adverts that were not strictly speaking about gaming, but they were trying to appeal to gamers. And one of these that I remember, because I remember ordering something from them, was Alchemy Metalware. Do you remember Alchemy oh, Metalware? Alchemy they, sold, they sold kind of belt buckles and, and pendants and things. And I remember writing off on ordering. I don't think I mentioned White Dwarf. <laughs> I may have done that. Forgive, forgive me if I didn't. Alchemy Metalware, if you're still in business. Um, I think I ordered something called Rager's Axe or something. And it was like a little axe pendant. And uh, I think I tried it on once, and uh, two things. I realised, I didn't, didn't really like it around my neck, it was a bit cold, a bit uncomfortable. And the other thing was, I like a bit of an idiot. Yeah. So never, I don't think I ever wore it, I just yeah. ordered it thinking it was cool. And, and those adverts are quite funny, because they're not game, they're not about gamers, they're not about gaming, but they're, they're obviously somebody thinking, these are the kind of people. There's a crossover. Would, there's a crossover, these are the kind of people who would buy a, a miniature dwarven or, or, I don't know, Viking axe and wear it out to, on the town or in yeah. the privacy of their own home. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, th I, I think uh, one thing we haven't mentioned, I mean, the, the big companies did adverts really well, didn't they? So, yeah. Chaos Ames ones, if you look at them now, they're very wordy. So, you know, there's, a, there's an early advert for Falls which goes on forever. Yes, they did. They had a block of writing, a paragraph of, of writing. She had lots and lots of information. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I, I would read those, you know, rather than the list, but I used to get drawn into the yeah. descriptions of them. And often full-colour um, RuneQuest miniatures, you get full-colour photographs of... I mean, obviously, they full-colour photographs of grey miniatures, but they look better because they were colour photographs rather than yeah. black and sort of funny black and white ones on the inside. So on the back cover you'd have a the RuneQuest miniatures and some yeah. think well they're a lot so, better. So yeah, Games Workshop used to give pride of place to the stuff that they um, were distributed, didn't they? Yes. So yeah. Call of Cthulhu used to have its own and what yeah. uh, uh, but the the other ones, the T S R ones, the early T S R ones with uh, the, the minis on the, the grenadier minis with that cuddly balrog with a sparkler going behind. But <laughs> yes. my uh, my final adverts um, are the ones for um, computer games. Mm -hmm. Now there was a there was a time when Games Workshop produced computer games because concurrently to us being playing role playing games, we were also playing ZX Spectrum games. Yes, we? yeah. You know, it, there was that period, a two year period when. Manic Miner and Chucky Egg and all that stuff. Mm. And uh, Games Workshop brought out three games together. Um, the Tower of Despair, which was like a... It was a bit like The Hobbit. Do you remember The Hobbit? Yeah, I do remember. Yeah, wait. Could you forget? Wait. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. Making wait. Tolkien even more boring. It's <laughs> quite an achievement, actually, isn't it? <laughs> it, it was one of those um, where you had a series of responses and it would come back. It was boring. I couldn't get past the first bit of me. Yeah. I could, kept getting killed. Um, not quite know what you're doing. Yeah. Not quite know. I've been killed, but I don't know why. And the other one they had was uh, one called D-Day. It was a tactical game, uh, recreating yeah. D-Day, which was tiny little squares uh, moving around. Yeah. And I didn't play that very often, and it used to crash a lot. Mm. But there was a game, 
that I played to death, and that was Battle Cars, which is a computer version of the board game. Yeah. Played it for hours. <laughs> played it for hours. When I look at it now, I think, I'll never get that time back. But it'll... <laughs> you could say that about a lot of things we do. <laughs> you, if you wanted to but you, you could play it two player so you could fight against each mm. other and so when we used to do it we were there on the spectrum keyboard and the tiny things weren't they, the spectrum keyboards yeah. and one of us would have one, one side, side of the other one, of the other. we're both right handed so <laughs> we were like getting in each other's way the other person who had to be left handed distinct disadvantage yeah <laughs> You'd be elbowing every t- every, t- every five seconds. You know, when you're making me dropping some oil somewhere. Uh, but it was it was one of those. I, I mean, it's well rehearsed, isn't it? It used to be one of those that was infuriating to the Lord as well. Mm. So that thing, it, it would it, you would listen. <laughs> yeah, the crackling. Yeah, the, the weird. Oh thing. no, it's gone. You know, 20 minutes gone, and it's slightly changing the frequency. You knew, you, you knew, you knew it, it had gone. Yeah, you had to start again. again. Yeah. Weird thing. You could, you could actually know how it, would, how it had to sound to be loading. Yeah. And I convinced myself that holding the wire helped it load quicker. <laughs> so for 20 minutes, I would hold this, this wire. Why did you think that? I don't know, because it was successful once. So you thought, yeah. that's how superstition starts, it is, yeah. essentially superstition. But yeah, that, those adverts for, um, I think, really brought back that. And uh, the, other, the other little note before I move over to you is um, on the town, so you had like a free um, drive around the town, on the top of the roofs it said support the miners. On the, so, really? so yeah, the, the programmers had put a little... Politics there. Yeah, politics, yeah. yeah. Get away with that now, wouldn't they? No. Mm, there you go. Yeah, they did they did add adverts for like I said, computer gaming, not not quite role playing. Another thing they want they had in one issue, might be more than one, uh, but I had to avert my eyes because I have I have an aversion to these, as you know. Uh, some games workshop jigsaws were once advertised, I think on the back cover. Jigsaws, yeah. Jigsaws. I don't like jigsaws. Yeah. I think it's on record, isn't it? Yeah. I don't like them. 90% of serial killers are yeah. big fans of jigsaws. Yeah. Are they really? No, they're not. But you can believe it, can't you? Yeah. 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 People who, people who buy a picture that somebody's cut up so they can put it back together. I mean, talk about not getting time back. Yeah. Now that, that is a waste of time. <laughs> this is a nice picture. Oh, right. I see the box in pieces. Oh, it's in pieces, is it? Oh, I have to put it together, do I? All oh, right. Okay. Stupid things, stupid. But there was kind of like offshoots like that occasionally, weren't there? They weren't. Yeah. I think. They, I think. They, to be fair, they were. They were pictures of I think either fighting fantasy books or covers or something like that, or Elric or something. But yeah, terrible, terrible things. Worse than a giant badger, a jigsaw. A jigsaw of a giant badger would be the most terrible <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, so. That's a, a look over um, uh, the ads. If you had a Desert Island advert that you'd want to retain mm. for you to remember everything about White Dwarf, what, what, which one would it be? Um, I don't know. 
it might be the Games Centre in Brighton, which had the, the boast of being the largest selection of games in the world. I, in, was the, it? in the world. <laughs> Not in Britain. In the world. Independently verified. So. I don't think it was. But I do, I do remember that one. Um, I don't know. I think it probably would be one of the, you know, games of Liverpool or the SDV games. It's just a list that I could keep looking at. Endless list of things. <laughs> got that, got that, not got, got that, yeah. not got that. Don't know what that is. That looks interesting. Mm, what's that? One, 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 one. Yeah, that's probably what I do on my desert island. Because it's really insane just rereading the list. Like a kind of weird mantra. Probably form a religion out of it. I'm there. If I'm there for long enough, you know. <laughs> Reading a list of <laughs> SDVM games out to a load of coconuts. Face it, face it off. <laughs> I can see myself doing that. That'd be what I'd do. Yeah. But when you do, yeah. remember to say to the coconuts yeah. that you saw it in White like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, that, that would be punishable by death. In my weird games based religion, I've gone mad on the desert island. That would be it. If any of the coconuts didn't say they'd seen it in White Dwarf, they'd be smashed up. <laughs> Have I taken the Desert Island thing a bit too literally? Yeah. I've opened up. Do apologise. Cheers, Blaine. See you next time. Goodbye. We're about to enter the fifth year of the Grog Pod. This all began as a plan to produce the memoir of our time playing games in the 1980s. But we soon realised that it was far too much hard work to write down. So why don't we record our discussions instead? The podcast was born out of our endless reminiscing, peppered with the thoughts of us rediscovering the hobby and our attitudes towards the games that we were now playing. We also thought that having a podcast may introduce us to one or two more people who'd like to play with us online. 51 podcasts later, we've had three grog meets held in Manchester, UK every November, We've run two virtual grog meets online with players from all around the world in April and we've produced three grog zines. And the Daily Dwarf, can I call him Alan for a minute, has a collection of essays about White Dwarf in three volumes and there's been over 50 posts on the grognardfiles.com. We've played over 250 hours of games online with our Patreon supporters. Achievement unlocked and as a bonus... We've inadvertently been acting as matchmakers for people who meet at the meet so they meet again. Thank you to all who've listened over this time and thanks to those who've liked and subscribed, reviewed or linked the Grog Pod to help more people find us. Extra special thanks to the patrons who've come and gone and also stayed around over the period and providing tips in the beret that keep us going, covering the costs of these mad projects and incentivising us to do more. We do this because we enjoy it, and we'll only stop when it stops being fun. We're very conscious of balancing doing interesting stuff and not burning out in the process. Our priority has always been, putting aside family and all that other stuff, that we want to enjoy role-playing games. Anything that stops that will stop everything. The following plans for new goals on Patreon may not be the most ambitious and the doomsters and the gloomsters may clamour for more but we know that they're achievable and, more importantly, that we'll have fun doing them. But always with the caveat that if it doesn't work 
will drop it like a hot brick. A resources page, a grog squad locker containing resources and discussion topics, a monthly one-shot club hosted alternately by me and Blythe on a Sunday night in the month so that we can test drive some of the games on our backlog. 7C, Legend of the Five Rings, Carphenaeum, Spire, City Must Fall and many others. A fanzine book club. Maybe a fanzine from the past may be made available <clears throat> to read together. Maybe. And some raw actual play from the Sunday One Shop may be released on a separate channel. These will only be made possible by backing us on Patreon. Thank you once again to all of those who back us. We're going to give out individual shout-outs next time. Until then, what are we doing next time? I, I, I can't remember. Zen? Zen, what is it we're doing next time? Adios, amigos. Adios.